on the Acadia Broadcasting Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. Well, Don, we had a very good conversation today with Sean Leet, the Managing Director and CEO of World Energy GH2, the company that is fairly well along on the green hydrogen project uh, slated for Western Newfoundland in, in, around uh, Saint, uh, the Stephenville uh, uh, community and port. Um, I, I think this is a very, very interesting project, and I think people in our region need to need to get up to speed with this because it's happening, it's moving quickly, and this is going to be, you know, in many ways, a generational change for some of the communities in our region if these projects go ahead. But we're starting with this one in Western Newfoundland. Yes, and uh, World Energy is, I believe, one of four uh, hydrogen projects currently in one level of development in Newfoundland and Labrador alone. Uh, we've done two two other podcasts with other uh, proponents of uh, green head, uh, hydrogen, including Bearhead and um, Everwind at the uh, Strait of Canso uh, area, and they're all, all along their processes. But this one seems closer than the ones that, that we've talked to. You know, they looks like they've done a lot of the a lot of the hard work uh, to uh, be ready to go once they get the environmental approval. And uh, as Sean said on the podcast, they anticipate getting that uh, in the first quarter of this year. And that means that they will be beginning construction in 2024 with uh, some plan, I believe, around 2027 to have uh, hydrogen being uh, produced in time to uh, export that hydrogen uh, to Germany where they have contracts uh, basically signed. So this looks very real. They have a fairly strong uh, number of uh, employees already working. I believe 47 people already work for Rural Energy. So, you know, um, this looks uh, like the closest to reality based on the, the what we've heard so far. Yes, and it's like any large industrial project. So, you know, if a, if a pulp mill was going to go in, it would need to use a large amount of the of the of the wood fiber in the region. If you were going to do a fishing project, it would require a lot of the fish stock. The only difference in this case is they're actually taking advantage of a renewable resource, which is the wind. So, yes, there's going to be, and he told us, 160 turbines. That's a lot of turbines. In the first um, phase. In, in the, the first, first phase. phase. So that will be a lot of wind energy, a lot of wind turbines. But, you know, again, it's it's a large industrial project that's going to create many good paying jobs and 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 really create a, an injection of economic activity we haven't seen in that part of Newfoundland in many, many decades, really. And a lot of people seem to be quite excited about it, according to our, uh, what uh, Sean was saying. And I just want to point out one other thing that I think is really important in this in this project. There's a guy by the name of John Risley involved. And, you know, John is a big visionary, uh, has accomplished, uh, you know, at least three, uh, you know, major, uh, you know, um, ventures uh, during his very successful career. Uh, and and uh, the one thing I know about John I know him a little bit is that he's very aggressive. And, you know, and the fact that they are where they are, it, I, I can bet it's because John's pushing hard uh, to take advantage of, of this uh, of this opportunity. So, you know, uh, that actually should bring a lot, another level of confidence because, you know, he has a great track record in success in developing businesses. And, uh, and, and this is just another one, I guess. Uh, but, you know, you're in a better position to talk about the economic uh, impacts because, uh, uh, you know, you, you actually did that study. So tell our listeners what you learned as a result of the work that you did for World Energy. Yeah. So that in the interest of full disclosure, I was hired a, f a few months ago to do an economic impact report. And, and it was a, a thorough piece because we hadn't seen anything like this in Canada before. So we couldn't just apply the normal multipliers that you apply to industries such as this. So I work with Stats Canada. We broke out a lot of the imports um, and so on. But at the end of the day, you know, just the just the uh, construction activity, just the phase one activity is going to generate something like two and a half billion dollars in, in GDP for the province, uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in tax revenue. It's going to create or support somewhere around 4,000 jobs during construction, hundreds of jobs uh, in ongoing operations uh, through direct, indirect, and induced effects. So, again, certainly a serious economic uh, engine for, for the province. It's, you know, it's not going to replace the oil and gas sector, but it's certainly going to be 
another energy sector that's going to enhance and support the economy in Newfoundland and Labrador. Certainly, certainly the biggest project in, in that part of Newfoundland and Labrador in uh, in in probably uh, I don't know maybe a hundred years. I don't know a long time. Well, you know, you and I are excited by the green hydrogen opportunity across the region. We've we've talked to a couple. Uh, in Nova Scotia, who are pursuing the same uh, um, dream, I guess. Um, you know, the, the Port of Baldoon is uh, talking about uh, creating a green energy hub uh, through small modular reactors for export. Uh, you know, there's a lot of activity. Not all of it will come true, but the fact that so many are, are under development now, uh, you know, gives us all some confidence that this could be, a, a, you know, a significant in in industry for this region. Largely because, as you know, the podcast we did with Peter Nicholson, Catching the Wind, we have renewable wind like nobody else in, in Canada. It, it is a real resource, not just for the production of green energy, by the way, but for the production uh, of green hydrogen, sorry, but for the production of green energy for export, especially if we get into the offshore wind. So, you know, this is just further cementing, uh, in my view, you know, what a transformational industry that this could be for Atlantic Canada. Yeah, but Sean actually teased us about use cases hmm. for the use of that energy in right. Atlantic Canada, because right. one of the big chunks of cost to developing green hydrogen is that you have to convert it to a liquid fuel and then ship it on tanks to Europe. So that's quite a cost. Right. So right. he teased us and said, well, what if you did green steel or what if you actually used that hydrogen to, into manufacturing processes here in Atlantic Canada? So you could actually start to see manufacturing plants in Newfoundland and Labrador, but even in Nova Scotia, taking advantage of the offshore wind that produces green hydrogen, green hydrogen that is necessary in the production, in the industrial production. So the thing is that you can't replace green hydrogen you can't replace uh, liquid fuels in some of these manufacturing processes like steel. You can't use direct electricity. You need a fuel. Uh, and the hydrogen is going to replace, well, it's going to replace coal or it's going to replace uh, natural gas. So I think that's really, really exciting that, uh, that not only are we looking at this huge potential energy source, but potentially actually using that energy to power new manufacturing or new industrial activity, green uh, industrial activity in, in the maritime provinces in Atlantic Canada. And again, Peter Nicholson mentioned that when we had him on the podcast that, you know, this is much like the development of, uh, of electricity in, in Quebec, which created the, uh, the aluminum manufacturing sector because they had uh, access to cheap energy. And, and when you have green energy, which is going to be, uh, you know, a sought after commodity, uh, people will consider locating uh, their manufacturing facilities to this region if they have access to it. So, you know, that's the other thing that a lot of people haven't yet uh, uh, caught on to. All right. Well, with that as our introduction, here is our conversation with Sean Leet, Managing Director and CEO of World Energy GHG. Pleased to welcome Sean Leet, the Managing Director and CEO of the World Energy GH2, to our podcast. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Don. Thank you, David. Pleased to be here. Yeah, so before we start talking about uh, World Energy, um, we want to find a little bit about yourself, um, uh, uh, kind of your career path to your current role. Um, we, we, we understand that you have had a relationship with John Risley that uh, precedes your current role. Be interested in learning a little bit more about that. But if you can tell us kind of your background and how did you end up where you are? Sure, happy to. Um, originally from the, the eastern shore of, of Nova Scotia and started uh, my career uh, as a cadet when I was about 16 years old with Secunda Marine. My grandfather and my uncle had founded Secunda Marine and uh, was started working um, during high school breaks and then into university uh, during breaks on, on the ships in the summer season. And it was a, it was a great start to, to my career. Moved into warehouse operations and then eventually into the office at Secunda. Spent uh, 13 years there and uh, had a wonderful experience, uh, very uh, entrepreneurial organization, and uh, it was quite quite exciting to be part of it. Uh, that entrepreneurial experience uh, rubbed off on me 
and then I went and started a, a ship repair company. We did a lot of uh, ship repair type of work at Secunda, and I enjoyed it. So I started a ship repair company and uh, ran that for five years and, and sold to my partners and then went to work for, uh, for J.D. Irving, running uh, their, their marine business and uh, did that for about uh, 10 years up in St. John and the entrepreneurial bug bit again. And I co-founded uh, Horizon Maritime with a friend of mine from, from Secunda Marine. And we were fortunate enough after about a year to, uh, to attract John Risley as an investor in, in Horizon Maritime as a partner in, in the business. And it's, uh, it's been a wonderful partnership. Horizon's focused on sustainability. We do a lot of work in, in the offshore energy industry. Uh, floating wind turbine installations, fixed wind turbine installations in the offshore. And we've developed a, a strong network in, in the renewables uh, space. John is a partner in World Energy LLC in the United States with a gentleman named Gene Gabolas. And Gene founded uh, World Energy LLC on Earth Day 25 years ago, just about, you know, just over 25 years ago now. Um, they have biofuels uh, manufacturing production facilities and um, and are into some large scale renewables projects. Uh, they are also one of the only manufacturers of sustainable aviation fuel in the world. And they had a requirement to green up their their product and went and talked to their partner, Air Products, one of the largest industrial gas suppliers in the world. And Air Products had told them, look, we're building a project in, in Saudi Arabia, Neom and uh, it'll be the first commercially produced green hydrogen. So if you want green hydrogen, you're gonna have to figure out how to manufacture it yourself. And uh, from there, um, John uh, and I went over to Holland, to the Netherlands, where one of our uh, partners in Horizon Maritime has a renewables energy academy uh, that, that services uh, customers like Shell and BP. And, and he put on a, a crash course for us, if you will, so we uh, we learned about what was important and, and realized very quickly that on the west coast of the island here in, in Newfoundland, where I'm based now, uh, there's a, a massive wind resource. And it, it became uh, uh, evident that there was a, a very unique site there that held uh, a world-class opportunity for a project of this nature. So that was um, December 2021 when, when John and I traveled to, to Europe to get, uh, to get educated, uh, came back and started to put the, the pieces together. This is John's idea, his, his brainchild. Gene um, uh, became involved in the business and, uh, and Brendan Paddock as well, who's a longtime friend and, and partner of, of John's and other businesses. So I, um, I've moved to St. John, uh, St. John's, excuse me, um, eight years ago now, and uh, that was largely to, um, to open Horizon Maritime's head office here. And it was, uh, <clears throat> I was with, um, well, I was CEO of Horizon until um, November of 2022. And at that point, we had uh, bootstrapped the, the hydrogen project to the point that we knew that we had something special. Uh, we decided to stand up an organization in in the province with the community office in Stephenville and our head office here in St. John's and start to bring some people on board to um, to transition from the consultants that, that had helped us uh, identify the opportunity and bootstrap the business from the start. So we're, um, we're here in St. John's now and uh, I'm excited about moving the project forward. So I didn't realize uh, uh, Fred Smithers is your grandfather. Is that right? Sorry, my grandfather is is J.D. Mitchell. Was um, he? He's okay. passed now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, because uh, well, obviously Fred uh, had a long involvement with Secunda, obviously uh, as well. Um, Absolutely. So you've given us a little bit of a, uh, an overview of world energy, but um, so the, co the company's obviously uh, only been around for a short period of time. Uh, do, do you have a staff of people working for the company now? We do. We have um, 47 people working for the company uh, in, in various locations. Um, we have four in, in Stephenville. Uh, based out of the community office, and then there's a staff of uh, five people at the Port of Stephenville, which which we own and operate now. Uh, the rest of the folks are uh, either based here in, in St. John's at the head office at 235 Water, 
um, some of them working remotely and, and come here on a periodic basis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Port of Stephenville. I was really curious. Uh, you know, one of the first things that you did uh, was to purchase that port. Um, obviously, there were strategic reasons involved in that purchase. Can you just tell us why that is such an important part of your project? Yeah, the Port of Stephenville is is quite unique, um, it being one of the only private ports in, in Canada and, um, you know, globally with respect to uh, an industry like we're entering into now or working to stand up now. It, it, it's a very unique uh, asset. You know, it being built by the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, um, and built to a very high standard. It's still in excellent condition. Uh, the channel is, is a deep water channel. The turning basin is, is uh, equally as deep at 10 meters. And it's a, a large <clears throat> large acreage um, alongside the, um, the, the port facility. So we've got um, 400 acres there and that's enough to fit the entire hydrogen ammonia plant footprint in for the phase one of the project. Uh, there's a large fresh water supply that used to service the uh, the paper mill that was there after the uh, the U.S. military had it, and that water supply is more than enough water than than, than we require for the initial phases of the project. Uh, couple that with you know the massive onshore wind resource that's uh, extremely unique, uh, unlike uh, wind resource that's uh, seen anywhere in the world from an onshore perspective and existing transmission corridors that are, are close by. Um, a wonderful um, stakeholder base there that's extremely supportive of the project and looking for uh, the economic um, uh, advantages that, the, that this will offer the region. It, uh, it really makes for, uh, for a, unique, a unique opportunity. And you know that water supply is, is key in, in other areas. Um, you just you don't have that very, very commonly uh, next to um, a facility like the Port of Stephenville. And in a lot of these areas where you do have um, uh, a high level of resources, whether it's it's wind or solar, they have to desalinate the water and they have to use renewable energy to do that in order to maintain a, a high CI score um, and to be certified as green hydrogen. Now, the, uh, Sean, this is a big project uh, to get to, um, production, uh, do you have a cost estimate of how much it's going to cost you to get to production? And perhaps how, how will that big number be financed? We're looking for the, the phase one of the project, which is uh, one gigawatt of wind, and we'll have approximately uh, 550 uh, megawatts of uh, electrolyzer capacity, generating about 400 tons of, of green ammonia annually. Uh, that will cost uh, current capex estimate is in the order of uh, six billion Canadian dollars. Um, the estimates are still still being refined, of course, and, and will continue to be until we get to uh, final investment decision. Financing right. plans uh, to your question there are, are well advanced. The, um, the European uh, ECAs export credit agencies are key to the financing, as you can appreciate. A lot of this equipment is manufactured in Europe. And uh, the ECAs offer quite attractive terms uh, should you be buying uh, equipment from the countries that they represent. And that provides uh, a bit of a foundation for, for, for the financing. Um, obviously, we've got a very strong partner in SK on board already in the project uh, who intends to, to be part of the, um, the ongoing financing effort. And we're involved with... Um, with a Canadian chartered bank and also some international uh, financing institutions, names that you would recognize to help round out that picture. Mm. We, we want to ask you specifically about the number of turbines and things like that in a minute. But the first question I have for you is, can you tell our listeners what is green hydrogen and what are its uses? Sure. Well, green hydrogen, the actual molecule itself, is no different than gray or, or blue hydrogen. Uh, but the green hydrogen is generated using 100% uh, re renewable energy. Um, if you have a grid connection to support the balancing of, of the electrolyzers, like every project will, will have um, that's generating green hydrogen. So obviously the wind doesn't blow all the time and, and you need that, uh, that backup load, that balancing load. Uh, the grid 
connection must be um, supplying over 90% green hydrogen to meet the uh, the EU rules. So that, that's quite quite an important piece as well. So green is is the purest form. It's the most expensive form to generate. It takes large amounts of electricity um, and and significant quantities of, of fresh water as well. That compared to that, so so. Consider green the gold standard, if you will, not to throw too many colors into the equation. Um, gray hydrogen is the traditional uh, method of producing hydrogen, typically through steam methane reforming process, and that emits carbon uh, into, into the atmosphere. So uh, not ideal and not going to help us uh, to get where we need to get in short order in, in the fight against climate change. Uh, blue hydrogen is is another color in the spectrum um, that simply uh, produces in the, in the same manner as gray hydrogen, but the carbon will, will be captured. And uh, there's advances in that technology that are, are advancing as well. Uh, somewhat capital intensive, but there's a lot of merits to to the blue hydrogen. And there's some other colors on the on the spectrum that are are uh, developing, such as pink uh, from nuclear. There's still a lot of questions around that, as you can appreciate. Uh, but again, back to green hydrogen, it's it's the gold standard and it's uh, where the focus is for, for decarbonization in the EU principally at this time. And what, to, what are some of its uses? I know it's used in industrial uses, but what are the, what are the future uses of the fuel? Well, it's certainly um, used in the refining process. You know, we've got refineries, um, large refining companies that are looking for sources of green hydrogen now. They're using hydrogen in, in their operations. Uh, steel making is another um, emerging offtake market that's moving extremely quickly, being led by a company called H2 Green Steel out of Sweden. And they need significant amounts of green power plus, plus green hydrogen to use um, to, to work a uh, DRI, direct reduced iron process, to make the green hydrogen without the significant emissions um, from, from the steel industry, which are currently 7% of, of global emissions on an annual basis. Uh, Marine's another one. Uh, green ammonia engines are, are uh, well under development. In fact, uh, they're, they're uh, essentially to a commercial state this year and will be installed in vessels. Uh, so we expect uh, the, the marine sector to be a significant off-taker, especially on the back of the, the changes that um, the International Maritime Organization has made recently. So there's, um, and then transportation is another use for, for hydrogen as well. Um, some of the countries in the Far East are looking at it for, for, for power generation, um, which is uh, maybe not the highest and best use of the product, but they, they need it to decarbonize. So. There, there's a number of discussions underway. Uh, eventually, or as soon as possible, we would uh, we desire to see uh, some value added to the product before it leaves leaves the island. And and if you think about um, the steel industry and the opportunity there, uh, shipping hydrogen is extremely expensive. So if you can uh, co-locate a DRI facility next to the um, the production of the fuel, it, it makes a lot of sense. And uh, this is what H2 Green Steel is, is, is working on in, in Sweden, but they are shipping the ore from, from Labrador because we have such a high quality ore in, in Labrador. Uh, so you can draw, draw some conclusions that there would be some uh, unique advantages to having that, um, that ore from the province uh, processed you know, on the island here and then shipped from there. So just, just so if I could jump in there. So you're saying there may be an opportunity to attract the manufacturing that actually is, or the industrial uses that are actually going to use the green energy rather than shipping it to Europe? Yes. I mean, ultimately, um, at, or at present, you know, Europe is the initial destination for, for the offtake. And uh, we want to support the Canada, Germany, um, hydrogen alliance and, and, and fulfill our, our commitment to, to, uh, to Germany and the EU um, and, and, initiate stand up the industry and, and initiate that uh, that part of the supply chain but as we build out the project and we've got significant capacity within the port footprint and the surrounding uh, areas for for wind generation you're probably aware we have four gigawatts of, uh, of crown land awarded or crown land four different sites where we can build approximately a gigawatt on each site so a total of four gigawatts 
so that'll allow us to you know, eventually um, supply green, green ammonia, uh, perhaps green hydrogen in, in liquid form. There's some technology being developed there to, uh, to Europe and, and, and other regions, and then also uh, divert some of that to a local supply for a value-add product such as green steel. That's that's uh, just exciting, exceptionally exciting. So I'm glad you could tell yeah. us about it. But we did want yeah. to ask you a little bit about the 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 geography here, the size of the scope of the project. Can you give us first of all? Can you pronounce the name of the project? I understand you've taken <laughs> a an indigenous name for the project. Can you pronounce that for our listeners? Sure. Yeah, we're we're proud of the name. Uh, the name uh, was uh, chosen by a, a senior. Uh, First Nations individual on the island, and uh, it stands for, or it means in Mi'kmaq, where the sand blows, uh, which is the original name for for Bay St. George. So it's Project New Geohonic is, uh, yeah, nice. is the pronunciation. Hmm. Thank you. Um, can you tell us, at least in phase one, how many wind, wind turb turbines are we talking about? Uh, it's roughly 160. We're, we're still, um, as you may appreciate, working through um, various stages of, of the design and optimization. Um, and we're in discussions with the major wind turbine manufacturers. We, we need a class one turbine for this site due to the turbulence and the strength of the wind, uh, which is great. There's three, three manufacturers in particular uh, globally that can manufacture turbines for us and each of them has a different model. So. Um, you know, one may be suggesting a, a six megawatt turbine, another may su be suggesting a 7.2 megawatt turbine, which obviously has an effect along with the optimization of, of the plant and, and um, those various inputs that, that we're working through um, on the, the amount of turbines that will eventually be at, uh, on the initial site. Are you able to take advantage of old uh, logging roads, things like that in the area? Potentially, yeah. It's um, there. There's, you know, a, a lot of trails within the areas that we're we're looking at, as as you may appreciate. Um, so there's uh, there's the potential for that. Um, a lot of this work is still ongoing and, and being refined. So um, we'll have to see where where all that uh, works itself out over the coming months. Could I just jump in on a question because uh, you're, you're going to get one gig gigawatt of power in the first phase, right? That's what I think I heard you say that. Are there times where you don't need all that power and you can feed some of it into the grid? So that that's a great question. Um, first of all, I'll say the nameplate capacity, if you want to look at it that way, for the wind farm will be approximately one gigawatt. Right. Um, that. In the region, that, that gives us uh, about a 50% capacity factor, which is significant. Um, so at times of the year, you know, in the winter months, we're going to have the turbines generating, uh, you know, a, a gigawatt of, of wind power. Um, and the plant will be sized according to the, the capacity factor of the wind blended with the amount of power that we're going to be able to secure from the grid, plus some energy storage, which we'll have available to help with the balancing as well. Um, so we think it's going to be about 550 megawatts of electrolyzer capacity. Uh, there are times during the winter where we will have excess power that um, we can uh, potentially supply to the grid. Um, and, and that's a conversation that um, we hope to have at, at some point in, in the near future with, with NL Hydro when, when they're ready to, to have that discussion. Um, uh, otherwise, that power uh, is is we'll, we'll we'll store as much as we can, but it'll be curtailed otherwise. Before I turn it back to Don, I just had one other question on this theme, and that is around the timing. So, phase one, um, if everything goes well, you get your environmental approvals. It's my understanding that you would actually start construction uh, this year in twenty twenty four. Is that correct? That's correct. And then do you have a rough timeline for us around the, the, the additional phases? Is that a, like a long-term, like a 30-year thing, or would that be within the next few years? What's the, what's the just the rough timeline if you were looking at those additional phases? So the EIS that we're working through currently, the environmental impact statement, we're working on the amendment now based on the additional information that the Environmental Assessment Committee has, has requested, is for the first two sites 
So the, the port-to-port site and the Codroy site, which are about one gigawatt nameplate name capacity wind farms each. So we would um, begin port-to-port site is, is um, phase one and, and, and the uh, Codroy site is, is phase two, but they're both wrapped up in the current application. So should we, um, we be released or when, when we're re released, let's say, uh, we would start um, progressing construction on the port-to-port site uh, as the priority, but we'd also be working in parallel on the Codroy site. John, there are lots of places around the world looking at green energy. Uh, by our account, probably 30 com uh, countries uh, with serious plans uh, under development from, from the United States to Australia, Egypt, Mozambique, Kazakhstan, in your own province, there's uh, other projects. There's a couple in Nova Scotia, you know, um, and, and, you know, we've been told that Atlantic Canada has an advantage in wind. <laughs> We're good at something. Wind is one of them. Uh, but uh, I guess a bigger question is, does it matter how many people get in this business right now or is, or, or is demand insatiable for hydrogen and, it, and, and there's really, it's, it's not it's not a competition who's going to be first, but there's just a competition to get the projects going. Is that what it is? Yeah, so it, it depends who you talk to. And it's interesting, you know, the big analysts like uh, McKinsey and Argus and Woodmac, they've all shifted their perspective over the last couple of years since we started looking at this this industry around the supply and demand discussion. Mm -hmm. And there's still there's still a lot of people out there that um, that have uh, significantly differing opinions on, on what that balance will look like or imbalance. Our view, and this is the view that's shared by um, more and more companies, I think, as time goes on, at least the ones that we're speaking to and the analysts such as Argus seem to be reflecting this now as well, is there's going to be a significant undersupply of green hydrogen for the foreseeable future into 2035. And, and, and perhaps beyond. And, you know, that would seem to make sense when you look at um, the position that the International Maritime Organization has taken, uh, the, the uh, EU uh, Renewable Energy Directive, the latest uh, iteration of that, number three. You know, these are some, some significant targets that, um, that have been implemented and there's going to be penalties associated with uh, with those for for the companies that aren't taking action and aren't able to meet those meet those targets green hydrogen is going to be a key to the decarbonization effort and, and meeting those targets and um, it's uh, we, we've seen a lot of projects on the drawing board uh, a lot of these projects are, are quote unquote suitcase projects there's very few that are erecting meteorological evaluation towers which is you need to do that. You can't rely on satellite data to design your wind turbines, and it, it's not financeable. You need the physical wind data. So we've got a year's worth of wind data now on the port-to-port -port site. We've got towers up on Codroy. Um, some of our um, uh, the, the other project in Atlantic Canada are erecting towers as well. But uh, you know, globally, you can uh, you can. Uh, there's a very small number that are actually moving forward and, and spending money. And that's not just on the towers. That's things like getting the infrastructure place, acquiring the Port of Stephenville, for example. So projects that are spending money um, and doing the things they need to do to really advance the project versus the 450, I think, McKinsey's last count was that are on the drawing board are, are very few and far between. So when the realization is now coming that uh, there will be very few projects generating green hydrogen by 2027, 28, when, when the infrastructure is going to be ready in Europe to receive the product. And there will be a significant undersupply. So um, that uh, seems to be where, where things are, are heading at present and uh, the, the likely eventuality of what we're going to see. Yeah, uh, you know, I just uh, I, I wanted to have, to ask you about the uh, um, uh, you know the wind. You you mentioned that the wind in the western part of Newfoundland is is a great resource. Can you give us some sense of how good the wind is? Like I don't know how you do this. Like you know, it's 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 
it's constant. It's at a high, high, you know, how you determine <laughs> you're doing it with the wind towers, obviously, but, but, but for our listeners, uh, you know, why, why is the Western Newfoundland so good for wind? Well, it, it starts with the, the wind speeds and then the capacity factor. So the wind speeds right. range on our, on our sites from 9.7 meters per second to 11.4 meters per second, which is significant by any standard. But it's probably best summed up for, for your audience um, with, a, with a very short story. Um, at the end of March, uh, I think March 28, 2022, we had a number of uh, people that were interested uh, in the project uh, come to the site. And we took them out on one of the Horizon Maritime vessels in the bay. Uh, interestingly, it was flat, calm, and sunny. We had our coats off on the back deck of the vessel. Uh, and everyone was a bit disappointed because they were expecting to see these, these very high wind speeds. But... Uh, they understood it's typically a very, very windy place. But when we started to, to look at the numbers and talk about the site, um, the CEO of a, of a significant um, um, renewable energy provider who's got a significant amount of installed capacity globally and has been in the business for, um, for over 10 years said, I have never seen onshore wind speeds as high as this anywhere in the world. Yeah. It, it's just very unique. It, it's actually higher than the offshore wind speeds in the immediate area because of the terrain. You're up higher um, and, right. and the wind's blowing stronger there. And we're, we're in the middle of the ocean, uh, really and truly. So it is uh, an interesting situation from the resource perspective. Another question that we wanted to ask you is that we're always interested in the economic impact of projects uh, uh, like yours in terms of the jobs and income and uh, produced uh, uh, for the community in the province. Do you have any, have you done a, a, any kind of economic impact uh, study for your project that, that you can talk about? Yes. Yeah, we retained a top-notch firm to, to uh, hand, handle that task for us and uh, they produced uh, an excellent report. It's, uh, it's significant. You know, the jobs are going to be 2,200 direct construction jobs probably 400 approximately during operations and uh, the numbers work out to about 4,200 indirect jobs. Uh, it will boost, the, the, the project will boost provincial GDP by 2.5 billion over the first three years of development. And again, we expect this to continue as, as we build out the, the other sites in, uh, in the future. It'll boost the federal GDP by about 3.6 billion over the first three years. And the CapEx investment will result in uh, approximately $1.3 in household spending in local communities across the province during the construction phase. Um, mm. Tax revenues will be more than $800 million, um, And that's broken down 70 for municipalities, about 430 for the province, and about 410 for the federal government. So it's, uh, it's significant by, uh, I think, anybody's standards. And, and over what time frame are you talking about there for those uh, revenues to governments, just to put it in perspective? Uh, the, these are over the, the, the first three years of the project. So the economic impact numbers that I just ran through um, were, were based on that. The first three, three, three years. Yeah. And if you think about our, our plans for continuing to build, um, that'll increase and, and escalate over time. Thanks. Yeah, so Don, I, I think you were aware that I, I actually did that work a few months ago. For, oh, uh, I forgot about uh, that. For World. So that's oh. a, in the interest of full disclosure. Oh, I would say yeah. we were we were very rigorous with the analysis. We backed out uh, the cost of the imports, which is which is always a challenge when you're doing these projects. You don't want to pretend to take economic value or credit for the you know the manufacturing of the turbine. So we brought we took out all those pieces, the electrolyzers. Right. And everything that was left ended up with what uh, what uh, Sean was talking about. So, hmm. just in the interest of full disclosure, I uh, appreciate that. Uh, Sean, do you have a sense of what the average wage, or at least the wage range, are these going to be pretty good paying jobs? They will be high paying jobs. Um, I'd rather not quote any numbers here right now because we're just not that far along. But uh, certainly, the um, the construction jobs will be extremely competitive. In order to attract the labor force that we need uh, to execute, and, and again, we're envisioning that this labor force will be 
um, working on this project for uh, many, many years beyond the, uh, the initial three-year time horizon. Uh, we need to have excellent work camps, uh, very high standard in, in all respects, and uh, that'll attract the, the right workforce in conjunction with, uh, with a competitive wage by, by any uh, region standard. And, um, you know, that, that'll also uh, hopefully uh, um, drive the retention of, of that workforce and keep them there once, once they're there. We do expect um, a, a lot of folks from the region that are working in other areas that will want to come home as well. But obviously that will, that will be based on them getting a, a competitive wage and competitive being competitive with any other region again, uh, certainly in Canada. So uh, we're, we're keenly focused on that. And then the uh, flipping over to the direct operations jobs long-term uh, they'll definitely be high paying jobs. Um, you know, this is the industry of the future. These are the jobs of the future. We're promoting the initial training programs, um, supporting the initial training programs at the College of the North Atlantic uh, through scholarships for the first uh, cohort of hydrogen technician and wind turbine technician students. And when, when they come out, they will have um, jobs that will be amongst the, um, the leading jobs in the area. So I wanted to ask you about the community response. So we heard there was some pushback, some concern over this many turbines. We also have heard that there, there's been a lot of support, including a big uh, a positive rally with a f like 1,500 people or something in November. Can you give our listeners a sense of how the community has responded to this project? Sure. It's, um, you know, with any large project, you get... Uh, questions and, and concerns that need to be addressed. And we've worked hard to um, be as available as possible, bring the right experts in for, for community meetings. Uh, the Stephenville office, uh, community office has been very, very busy where we've got maps and technical information and, and uh, people on site that, that can answer a variety of questions. Uh, I've been out to the community meetings myself and participated um, in, um, in most of them. And, you know, our takeaway is we have a significant amount of support in the area. Um, a lot of people that had uh, questions or concerns uh, that have had them answered satisfactorily are, are supportive of the project. I think the rally that you mentioned really speaks volumes. You know, 1,500 people came out to that rally and um, it was snowing sideways. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, was, wasn't a pleasant day, but they, they really showed their support and all the heavy equipment that trucks that were lined up on the road. Um, really made a, a stunning visual and impression. And I think a lot of people took, took that as a strong sign for, for the supports that, that's there. Um, we've been meeting with community members since spring of 2022. That's when we held our, our first um, meetings with, uh, with the technical experts present. We've had community meetings prior to that, more around introducing the project, uh, where we really started to focus on responding to the questions and the concerns was, was uh, during that time frame. And I, I'm repeating myself to a certain extent here, but as people learn more about the project, they become supportive of the industry and, and the benefits it'll bring. Uh, and they understand it's a green industry. I mean, this is what's, what's needed globally. Not everybody um, is a fan of having um, a wind turbine close to, to where they're, they're living. But you know, if you drive around uh, the US, you drive around Europe, I mean, this is, this is part of life. And, um, having a, a green, green energy industry stood up in, in this province and being able to capture first mover advantage in green hydrogen is just a massive opportunity. I don't, I don't think it's really set in with, um, with the general population how, how big of an opportunity this is. So we're, we're down to what we believe is a small vocal minority that are you know, maybe not just opposed to our, our project, but a lot of development in, in the area. And we respect their views. Uh, we continue to be open to uh, interacting with them and, and answering their questions and, and um, trying to get to a place where we, we would have, uh, you know, 100% support. But, but the reality is we've got uh, a significant amount of support and, and we really appreciate the, the efforts that people are making to, uh, to show government that, that they want the project and um, they want it to happen as soon as possible so that we can capture that first mover advantage. 
Well, we recently interviewed uh, John Davis, the CEO of the Halibut uh, Holdings, uh, uh, the indigenous uh, group that I think that you're working with, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, and he talked about the green energy opportunity from a First Nations perspective. Can you talk to us about the relationship that you have with First Nations uh, uh, with regard to this project, Sean? Sure. I mean, how the Alibu have been uh, a wonderful uh, partner. Uh, we have uh, a memorandum of understanding in place with, with Alibu at present. Uh, discussions are advancing on specific uh, agreements to um, specify the areas that they will be involved in in the project. It's, it's um, been publicly announced that uh, the DOB Academy, that's the academy that John and I went to in, um, in late 2021 to, to understand more about the industry. Uh, they've opened an academy in Japan at the request of the Japanese government and, and we're trying to replicate that in Stephenville and uh, they're working on a partnership with, with Alapu. That'll be uh, a really exciting opportunity for um, providing community and, and industry training uh, below the level of, of the College of the North Atlantic. And, and I don't mean below, meaning inferior to, if you look at the college as a diploma granting institution with the courses that they've started to deliver, the DOB Halibu Academy will be focused on, again, that community industry awareness training, uh, safety training for people going on site and, and building that out from there. So that's an example of how, how we envision uh, the relationship with the First Nations developing on the project, bringing them in, um, building opportunities together that will have a real legacy. And hopefully uh, the DOB Alibu Academy uh, can be uh, uh, utilized in other areas and other, other projects that expertise that they're creating. So we're quite excited about the various activities that, um, that we've identified that um, Alibu will be participating in. And, and within the region, there's uh, local bands that uh, we're, we're in uh, discussions with as well. And it's, um, it's quite exciting to see the, the level of support and engagement that we have in general. Well, this is, a, this is probably, uh, you know, the biggest large-scale capital investment in Western Newfoundland since perhaps the pulp mill went in, I don't know, 50 years ago, maybe, huh, or more. Yeah. Um, so is there a plan in place to ensure that you have the workforce needed, uh, you know, for the capital investment phase of the project? Because, you know, it, it, like most of uh, Newfoundland, it's an older population that's been aging for a while, hadn't had much population growth uh, until only recently. And, uh, you know, so what's your plan to make sure you have the labor force that you need, Sean? So that... The, the, the number one question we get when we go into the community and, and the number one reason for the visit to the community office is what, what are the jobs? When can I start working um, for particular individuals? But you'd be surprised at the amount of parents that are coming to us and saying, look, uh, uh, what, what are the opportunities going to be? I have, uh, you know, child, children working away. They want to come home. They're excited about this. And, and they're trying to, to um, get an understanding of it to, to pass on to their family and, and get them back home. It's, uh, it, it's gonna be interesting to see how it unfolds, but uh, the indications are that uh, uh, there's an abundance of, of individuals that, that wanna come back and live in the community, be part of the construction phase, many that wanna be part of the ongoing uh, direct operational jobs as well. We've got a number of contractors, uh, partners, we'll call them, that, that have been involved in the, in the project since in early stages. Um, and in these companies, many of which you know, uh, strong Atlantic Canadian companies, uh, are working in different regions and have said, you know, one in particular, just one of these contractors said, we have about 600 people that are from the West Coast that are working in different areas and all of them, uh, most of them want to come back and, and work uh, on this project. So we expect that to be, uh, to be significant for us. Again, we've got to make sure that we've got, uh, excellent accommodations, excellent services. You know, we're looking at, at work camps that are first class that have, um, 
individual en suites, uh, excellent workout facilities. Of course, the food needs to be top notch, but maintenance people uh, to take care of electrical and plumbing issues and that sort of thing uh, need to be available and, and, and delivering service at a very high standard. Uh, and, and we talked about this a bit earlier, but it's, it's worth repeating. That's what's going to drive the attraction and the retention of those individuals, that including ensuring we're paying uh, a competitive wage. So we believe we've got some, some advantages there. Um, you know, I'll point to um, one of the wind turbine technician students, a gentleman named Alex White, who has interfaced with us uh, on the project from, from day one. Um, Alex actually accompanied um, uh, Laura Barron and I up to, um, to see a wind farm in Ontario that we took a number of the port of port uh, representatives too, so they could actually see the turbines in, in a community. And Alex did his due diligence. He did his homework. He's a, he's a very intelligent young man. Uh, he had come back to the Port of Port Peninsula from during COVID. And uh, when we, we uh, awarded the scholarships at the College of the North Atlantic, he got up and spoke and he talked about his experience and about what it meant to him to be able to come home and, and have this kind of opportunity available to him. Um, You'll see videos on our social media channels with with the sim similar message from from all kinds of different people. So as as much as on the face of it, you're very accurate. You know there there's um, there's all those challenges uh, with the demographic in in the region at present. We think we're going to change that. That's awesome. So I wanted to ask you. You talked a little bit earlier about how you're in discussions with some of the big suppliers of wind turbines, but we ha we do hear there are shortages and and perhaps longer wait times for this equipment, the turbines, the electrolyzers, et cetera. Are you concerned that this might impact the timeline for this project or do you have a, a pretty good confidence you'll be able to secure the, uh, the, the raw materials products that you're gonna need for the project? Uh, great question. So the long lead items for this project are critical. Uh, HVDC equipment is, is in short supply globally. That's, that's a key part of it that people don't think of immediately. But the wind turbines are, are key and the electrolyzers are, are key as well. The ammonia tanks are another one that, that you, we need to get out in front of and we are out in front of. We've invested a significant amount of time in building our relationships with all of the large OEMs that can supply equipment to the project. These are the Siemens of the world, Vestas of the world. And we've got personal relationships with these people now that have been developed over a period of time. Uh, it was important to do that. Because there was 450 some projects on on McKinsey's map, and and all of them were vying for quotations from these companies. So we've we've actually had to go and spend a, a fair bit of time with them, invite them to the site. Um, we had the advantage of having you know our prime minister and and the uh, German chancellor come to Stephenville. So you know that that uh, put us on the map in in a significant way and, and allowed us to to open some doors fairly conveniently. And of course, um, you know. John Risley and, and Brendan Paddock and, and uh, Gene's uh, reputations in, in the, uh, the overall business community are, are important with, with to that as well. But we've been successful in um, having manufacturing slots uh, available to us based on our timeline, which continues to be iterated. And um, we feel good about our, our ability to secure the equipment in the window that we have now. And this is extremely important um, all of these uh, OEMs have said to us, well, we know your, your project's advancing, very serious. Um, you know, they, they are waiting to see uh, the details on the federal government support, um, you know, whether there will be contracts for different uh, programs in place for the first mover projects, which was something in the last budget, as you're probably aware of. Um, details on that still, still aren't available, so we get questioned on that a fair bit. And then of course, the environmental uh, assessment process is the provincial government um, um, you know, but behind the industry and, and, and um, is that going to, to move along as well? Uh, so those question marks are, are there and we manage those discussions. On the other side of that, you have the US IRA and the, uh, the potential for projects to start to move very quickly there. Um, you know, there's some some challenges with the new rules for for the the U.S. 
uh, organizations for for exports, but you know there's there's still going to be a huge amount of, of um, activity generated from from those subsidies that are going to be available. So once those projects start to um, be become funded uh, with the the U.S. subsidies, there will be a run on all of this equipment: the electrolyzers, the turbines, the HVDC equipment, and the window will close on us. So the rules are, are being formalized now in the U.S. and we've got a limited amount of time here to, to hold our position with these, um, these um, OEMs on the long lead items. So we're keenly focused on that. And that's one of the things that we talk to, um, to all levels of government about is, is the urgency around those items in particular. I mean, offtake is, is very important as well. And we need to, to be a first mover uh, from an industry perspective. Uh, but equally as important as having the equipment to be able to build the project and produce. Wanted to just shift a little bit to the supply chain opportunities that this project will create, uh, not just in Western Newfoundland, but maybe across the province and, and, and indeed the whole region, I think, Sean. What are the best opportunities? I mean, I mean uh, you know, there's a really strong oil and gas uh, industry in Newfoundland, for instance. I, I'm sure that there's some crossover opportunities for suppliers in that regard and, and perhaps in the mining field as well. But what are the be best opportunities for local supply uh, a chain? Uh, where would I start? I mean, you know, with a project like this, it's, it's massive. Um, you know, think about um, security services, laundry, uh, catering. Uh, a lot of a lot of the stuff, as you mentioned, that, that we're doing in, in oil and gas, and we've got a world class supply chain here because of the the oil and gas industry. Um, it's it's remarkable the the talent that we have uh, here locally working in the industry, and you know many of those folks have gone to uh, very senior positions in abroad with with some of these uh, these energy majors. So we we uh, we feel fortunate to to have that uh, road paved to a certain extent, if you will. Um, you know, the, the engineering uh, work that we're, we're going to ramp up and require for this is, is absolutely massive. I mean, the reality is there won't be enough um, vendors to supply the, uh, all of the services that are, are, we're going to require. Some of it's going to have to be imported, but we're committed to um, providing as much opportunity as we can for, for the local community. And that includes developing uh some of these these companies as well with some of this um, new technology that that we uh we require that we're going to have to operate so um you know I'm, I'm being a bit general in my my response but it, it really is uh, a massive opportunity when you think about uh, the the construction effort that will be going on for many many years uh, you mentioned earlier that you're just waiting for final approval for the environmental um, uh, plan that you put in, and you and they asked for some, uh, I guess, updates or revisions to that plan. When do you anticipate getting approval that you can proceed with this project? Do you have a do you have a hopeful time frame that you're looking at? We do. We hope to uh, have all the information assembled for for the amendment. The uh, the, the submission that that will address the additional information that the um, environmental assessment committee has has required um and and submit that uh somewhere toward uh the end of the month this month january and at that point the legislative timeline starts and there's a 50-day public consultation period again and then um, a window for the minister to to make a determination as to whether we'll be released and, and able to move forward so uh we're hopeful that uh, somewhere in, in March, we, we would get a favorable decision from the minister and, and be able to start um, moving things along in earnest. Sean, you've talked about a lot of the different moving parts associated with pro this project. I'm, I'm impressed by the scale and the, 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 all of the different things you have to be thinking about here in this project. But we wanted to ask you one last sort of big question here around, are there any potential roadblocks to this project that you want to share with us, uh, you want to share with the listeners. Any anything that that um, comes to mind that could be a big roadblock or uh, to, to to moving this project forward. Well, 
we've got we've made a, a massive amount of progress in a short period of time, a relatively short period of time on de-risking the project, and the de-risk milestones are are significant that that we've uh, moved through, which is why we have SK uh, interested and invested in the in in the project last May, and and uh, have other parties that are interested as well. Uh, it's quite remarkable the interest that we do have in, in, in the project due to the progress we've made and, and the uniqueness of the site. Um, so if you think about um, th those stakeholders that are interested in, in investment, um, you've got stakeholders interested in offtake, and then you have the OEMs, which we just talked about in a fairly high level of detail. Um, they're, they're all looking at those remaining de-risk milestones that are significant, that is, getting released from the, the environmental assessment process, uh, ensuring there's full clarity on the, the federal government support for, for the industry uh, with the ITCs and the, the CFDs. And um, th th those are the two uh, big items that are two or three, if you want to call it that, that, that we're focused on. Um, that they could be roadblocks if uh, if they went uh, went the wrong way. We believe that the offtake agreement is is going to come in in due course uh, once uh, they see these de-risk milestones being cleared, uh, and and that's based on the earlier part of our discussion where we talked about the fact that the world is recognizing there's going to be an undersupply of green hydrogen for the foreseeable future. So the federal tax credits that that was actually developed in the last. I guess in the last budget to to actually respond to the U.S. IRA, and there was a lot some confusion around how it's going to be implemented. How how long do you think before you think the federal government is going to sort of settle settle on what that actually looks like, and you have clarity uh, on on the federal participation? So we had some uh, some more progress in the fall economic statement, and and I want to say you know we're extremely impressed with the way the federal government and the provincial government have. Uh, have worked to, to move this industry along. Uh, having said that, it, it, it can't move quickly enough and we're at a, a very critical point right now where, where we need it to move even faster. So we're, uh, we're continuing to, to, to push um, on, on all fronts to, um, to make sure we've got clarity there. But to your question, um, I think you know the specifics are, are some time away, a number of months away. Um, but we do have indications as to to what those will be, and, and the federal government's being uh, extremely supportive. And uh, as we get new information, we're letting those stakeholders that I mentioned uh, know what the updates are in in real time, and uh, ensuring they understand that that uh, you know all levels of government are are committed to to moving this along. But as you can appreciate, they still want to see you know the rubber directly on the road and, and, and the details along with that. So if listeners want to find out more about this project, where can they go? Do you have a website, social media, where, where can people go to find out? We've got a, certainly a website, uh, worldenergygh2.com. We, we do a lot of our messaging on, on social media, uh, primarily LinkedIn. Uh, it's a great, great channel. We found to be very effective in, in keeping people informed got some great videos on there of people from the community talking about what the project means to them. There's a video of, of the project uh, owners and, and partners, um, and they're all fa fairly short, so people may be interested in, in seeing those. Uh, our corporate office, head office, is at 235 Water Street in Scotia Centre on the sixth floor. Um, people are welcome to come by here, and certainly the, uh, the Stephenville um, community office at 13 Tennessee Drive uh in the airport in stephenville is um is open uh generally regular business hours and our community uh, relations folks are available to go to um, individuals houses or, or communities upon request for people that might not be able to get to the community office we try to be as accessible as possible and those are the main channels sean we want to thank you for joining us today in the insights podcast i, I hope you realize what a generational project this is we've talked about you know the u.s army and the work that they did many many decades ago and don mentioned the pulp mill this is another industry that has that level of significance to the economy in western newfoundland and um uh, we really appreciate you talking to us about it today and we wish you all the best 
as you work on this opportunity for the people of uh, Western Newfoundland and Labrador, but also the, 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 the rest of Atlantic Canada. So thank you again. Well, thank you, gents. It's been a pleasure being on, on your podcast and we appreciate the, the opportunity and the interest in the project very much and happy to come back for an update uh, at, uh, at a point where you may find it interesting. Thanks again. Well, we'd like to do that, Sean, for sure. Thanks again. You've been listening to the Insights Podcast from the Acadia Broadcasting Corporation. Follow the show and listen to past episodes on your favorite podcast platform, like Apple or Spotify. If you've enjoyed the show, why not recommend it to a friend? Don and David will be back next week with another deep dive into some key issues in Atlantic Canada.